Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Hi there, and welcome back to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today, and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, a sustainability advisor, speaker, and author of the book Net Positive. Today's episode is all about transportation policy, and more specifically about the data and data collection methods that are helping aid policy creation. And joining me today is Dr. Regina Clulo, CEO and founder of Populous, a data platform helping cities manage the future of mobility. Dr. Clulo received her PhD in transportation systems from MIT. She holds a bachelor's degree in computer science and a master's in civil and environmental engineering from Cornell. She's also served as a transportation researcher at Stanford, UC Berkeley, and UC Davis. I can't think of anyone more qualified to be joining us to talk about the data needed to inform policy. Welcome, Regina. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into the work you're doing with Populous, but we thought it'd be fun to start maybe with a little more of a passion project. And I know you're part of this group called Engineers for a Sustainable World. That sounds right up my alley. A lot of the work I do is with large companies on making the world more sustainable. And I've heard people say for years that sustainability is just one big design problem. So it seems like engineers are, are the answer. Where did that come from and, and what's its mission? So I, I actually view Populous and Engineers for a Sustainable World. They're both kind of passion projects. They're both things that I started. Uh, Engineers for a Sustainable World came about because I went to college back in the day because I was good at math and thought the internet might be a big deal someday. I majored in computer science. And this was back in 1997. And when I popped out on the other end of my undergrad experience, all that was out there were dot-com jobs that just weren't that exciting to me. And so I was always passionate about environmental issues, which is what led me to form Populous as well. So after I wrapped up a degree in computer science, I got a master's degree in environmental engineering and then started Engineers for a Sustainable World. And our mission was to infuse sustainability principles into engineering education. So we received funding from the National Science Foundation, UNESCO, and had chapters around the world working to make sure that the engineers that are building all the things that we use in the world were educated in the space of sustainability. That's really great. So I'm, I'm also working on bringing sustainability thinking um, into business school education and, and kind of undergrad, in, you know, economic and I guess engineering education too. So that could be a whole other podcast talking about how do you change curricula? It's really, it's really difficult, right? They build up for decades before it becomes the norm and it's hard to change what everyone thinks of as the basic classes for a degree, right? It's, it's been set for years. How did you find that kind of trying to change the, the way we think about engineering? Well, so one of the things that I came to the conclusion towards the end of my journey at Engineers for a Sustainable World is the best way to change higher education is to become a professor. And so I decided the logical thing to do would be to get a PhD. So I decided to get a PhD in climate systems and, and engineering and ended up focusing on transportation because it's the largest source of our greenhouse gas emissions. And then that ultimately led to forming populace. Unless you count cows 
in agriculture, that might be the most, depending on if you include the transportation within agriculture, I suppose they're they're both just huge. I saw your, that you had a PhD in transportation and energy systems. I might want to come back to that because that's an interesting combination. So let's let's jump into populist. It's good to hear that all of your work are passion projects. That makes it for a nicer day when you're going about your work. What was the purpose? What was the problem that populist was trying to solve? The problem that we were trying to solve is that many public agencies, regional agencies, city departments of transportation, they fundamentally manage the space that we use in cities. The challenge is that most of them are operating on different time cycles. So they're creating infrastructure that's intended to be used for for decades. But transportation is changing much more quickly than that. Really, the main goal of Populous was to help cities be able to access better data from increasingly private fleets of mobility services. We we're talking about scooters, car sharing, bike sharing, delivery fleets that are increasingly connected and have access to data that cities can use to more dynamically reconfigure the infrastructure that they manage. It's interesting. So what there's, as you said, there's this huge evolution going on. There's kind of unstudied and unregulated travel happening, right? More and more scooters, bikes, um, these are all growing, right? And, and the shared services why do they present such a problem, you think, for city planners? What's the issue? Well, if you think about you know, a city planner or a regional agency establishing infrastructure 10 years ago, 10 years ago, they didn't anticipate would be as many people riding electric scooters in their city, most likely. And so we don't have infrastructure that's really intended for that use case. And that means that there might be safety issues in the case of delivery services. There might be more congestion issues. Basically, the infrastructure that was put in place wasn't designed for those use cases. And that means that there are problems that are likely to emerge if a city can't be more dynamic in reconfiguring how that space can be used so that everyone's safe, so that our streets are more sustainable, so that there's less congestion. We've talked to a lot of people in this podcast about kind of the flow in cities. That's a, a big discussion. And cities experimenting with taking away lanes for cars, putting them in for these other use cases. What I mean, what do you think are kind of the priorities for that? I want to talk about digital infrastructure too, but the physical infrastructure, what what would you want to see so that all of these different use cases, as you call them, coexist? Well, I think that historically most transportation planners would probably acknowledge that many cities have been designed around automobiles. And if we want to encourage more sustainable, more multimodal transportation, we need to rethink how that space is, is currently allocated. I think that the vast majority of you know large cities are really concerned about safety. There's, they are seeing more people cycling. They're seeing more people scooting. Uh, and they want to make sure that they have infrastructure that allows them to do that safely. That is a huge priority in many cities. And I would say the second big priority outside of designing for, for micromobility is understanding how to better design for delivery services. So from Uber and Lyft, uh, i.e. passenger delivery, to obviously Amazon, and then on-demand uh, food delivery, the delivery space is booming. And most of our cities were not designed for those use cases either. We have a lot of space allocated to cars to park for free in many cities in the U.S. or you know for, for long periods of time. Uh, when what we really need are more dedicated pickup and drop-off places everywhere in order for those services to, to be able to operate more efficiently. Yeah, so I'm I'm relatively new to the detailed arcana of transportation, you know, acronyms, and I've learned recently the PUDO, the pickup drop off, and that there's people in cities with that's their job is dealing with that change in how much is coming and going from our curves, especially now, right? I mean, the amount we're buying of the economy 
that's coming by delivery is is pretty high. It doesn't seem like it's going back anytime soon. So let's let's talk about the the digital infrastructure to kind of help with mobility and deal with things like congestion and curbside pickup. How are cities going about that? I would say a lot of cities, one of the things that micromobility offered to them was a way to start more immediately experimenting with digital infrastructure. So the mobility data specification, which is a data standard that describes the, the schema, if you will, for how and what information should be shared from private fleets to cities might look like, allows them to then understand you know, where are trips occurring, where are origins and destinations of those trips, where are operators dropping off vehicles in order to identify preferred parking spaces. So we saw a lot of cities, for example, you've probably seen stenciled scooter parking in curb cutouts, hopefully by transit stations and other places where uh, there's clearly a lot of demand for those vehicles. And then for curb pickup and drop off for things like food delivery. Uh, similarly, I think during the pandemic, we saw a lot of really quickly moving cities create those loading zones because they recognize that, for example, they wanted to keep restaurants in business. And if pickup and drop off and delivery services could help them do that, they wanted to support it. And so we saw a lot of that happen really quickly over the last yeah, 18 months. Yeah, maybe dig in a little bit on what the mobility data specification means. It sounds like it's kind of in the category just creating standards. So everybody's capturing the same kind of information. And standards always seems like wonky and people don't realize how much standards make the world work, right? If we don't have some compatibility, you end up like we do with computers and seven different things to plug in. And, you know, there's not one way to do it. What is that really trying to do? Is this about getting data from each, each vehicle, each scooter, each person's phone? Like what is the, what is it really trying to get, get done? And why is it really valuable for, for policy making? The mobility data specification, or MDS, for short, we've been really involved in helping shape it. Uh, we're on the steering committee for, for MDS. And what it essentially does is defines how fleet operators, specifically those shared scooters, bike share, we've adapted it to car sharing back in 2018, in order to share information about where trips and vehicles are located so that a city can use that data, usually historically, in order to create infrastructure for those different use cases. So parking corrals, restricted parking, no ride zones, if cities are concerned about safety issues, typically, that is really the, that data standard allows cities to receive that information in a consistent manner, so that they can create consistent policies. Without the data standard, what happens is there are boutique data requests, it's harder for operators to share data and then vice versa, if without data standards for cities to create policies in a more uniform way, it's hard for operators to comply. And so the mobility data specification makes it easier for operators and cities to work together more seamlessly. I like to describe Populous as sort of a data peacemaker. We're in the middle there helping ingest the data so that cities can use it more easily, effectively, quickly, and then vice versa to share information back to operators. So just to get can I just put some names on it so people picture it, this is, you, know, you say boutique requests, this is cities asking Amazon or FedEx or delivery companies or Uber to provide data on the flows of their vehicles. Is that the kind of information they're looking for? And does that have any privacy issues? Or are these companies pushing back? The mobility data specification currently applies primarily to shared fleets of scooter, bikes, and car sharing and mopeds. It doesn't currently apply to services like delivery services. There's certainly an interest on the part of cities to better understand all of the vehicles that are using their public right-of-way so they can plan for them. 
when it comes to privacy, one of the reasons, honestly, that Populous exists is in order to help cities access that data in ways that it can be anonymized and aggregated so that they can use it effectively for transportation planning. It's a scalability problem, partly. You know, you can imagine having one city department of transportation after another try to build the infrastructure to directly ingest these large streams of data and adapt that are constantly adapting. It's hard. Most cities don't have enough technical uh, digital infrastructure in order to, to manage that, whereas we do that at Populous for 100 plus cities. And so we have those economies of scale to make it easy to anonymize and aggregate and make the data visually appealing and easy to use for a person who you know isn't a data scientist or doesn't have a background in geographical information systems. You want to make it easy for the policymakers. Do you have a, I mean, you're working with so many cities, do you have examples of the kinds of policies you've seen come out of this that you think are most effective and really improve safety and everybody's peace of mind, I guess, about these, these micromobility options? Yeah, there are a lot of different categories of policies that are implemented, but they fall into a couple of key buckets. I would say, you know, parking is a, the most common set of policies that most cities will put in place in order to help congregate vehicles in certain areas they know there should be high demand. The second is equity. So transportation equity is a really big challenge in many major cities. And so we do see a lot of cities put in place basically distribution policies that ask operators to place a certain percentage or number of vehicles in low-income neighborhoods. And then the third category is safety, trip planning, basically updating the infrastructure that allows micromobility users to get around cities safely. Populous actually received two U.S. Department of Transportation grants to expand the digital infrastructure on our platform to make it easier for cities to accelerate those infrastructure decisions. Prior to MDS, to be honest, the data collection for bike and pedestrian safety was very manual. And now it's nice to have access to large volumes of data to more quickly iterate on, on safer roads. By man, you mean organizations or the, the shared service companies were just sending emails to people and they're putting it in spreadsheets? Is that is that kind of what ha was happening with data? It wasn't it wasn't being transferred kind of in a in a structured way? Because that's what's honestly that's what's been going on with companies and just, you know, energy or footprint for years. They don't have one system often across buildings if they're multinational. And there's someone emailing, this is how much energy we used in this building this month. And then they put it in a spreadsheet and figure out the carbon footprint. I mean, it's really antiquated still to this day. Is that happening in transportation data? Well, I'd say that was what was happening about three years ago before MDS, before micromobility and those devices being connected. Most cities would have humans standing and collecting counts of pedestrians and yes. Oh, literally humans like counting. Oh man. At an intersection. Yeah. I thought you were talking about just the entry and the collection of the day, but the actual people counting, right? I've seen those people, you know, subways or at an intersection. I get why that's necessary though, right? I mean, I guess you now have cameras that can capture that, which nobody wants to admit, but there's probably enough filming going on that you don't have to do it with a, with a person, right? Yeah. There's other bike pet counters, but a lot of times cities want to ground troop it with a human. What is the kind of main benefit you've seen for cities. And if you see the adoption of these micromobilities and scooters, and I know e-bike sales have just skyrocketed, you know, bike sales went up a lot in the pandemic, but e-bikes e were two, three times the rate. What's the real benefit for cities? What is it? Is it replacing cab rides, Uber rides, or is it just allowing kind of more equity as you describe, allowing people to get further if they don't have good transportation options? What have been the, the real benefits? 
the range that you can go with an e-bike is obviously significantly further than with a with a standard bike. And I think for people in cities, it allows them to replace a lot of trips that they might normally have made in a car, whether it's an Uber or a Lyft or one that they felt compelled to buy for themselves. I know, for example, a lot of people who are able to, if they have kids, go from a two-car household to a single-car household, or if they don't, <laughs> to a zero-car household. So I think it, it provides for you know a lot of optionality for commute trips, but even grocery trips, if you have any cargo bike, which are increasingly common, also expensive, but <laughs> very common. And so it allows one to live more of that multimodal lifestyle where they have the option to bike transit and not drive everywhere. Well, that's interesting if they can reduce cars, right? There's a huge cost and, and time sink in cities to go out and alternate side of street and parking. And, you know, you know, in these cities, it's really expensive to keep a car, right? It can be as much as a cheap apartment. So that's a lot of savings. It's really interesting. So you, you mentioned working with the U.S. Department of Transportation, you talked about a grant. What, what kind of work are you doing with them? What, or how are you improving safety, you know, across the country? So we received a USDOT grant to advance the digital infrastructure of how we analyze safety on our platform on behalf of cities. So we have a cohort of 18 plus cities that have access to our platform. We currently pull in data on trips. So we receive breadcrumb trace data for trips that occur in a city, and then we aggregate that into volume. So a city knows on Main Street and 5th, we saw 100 trips a day, and we don't have any bike infrastructure there. How can we accelerate adding more infrastructure, but then we're layering on other data sets. So most cities do have data that they're collecting on bike and pedestrian crashes, which are an indicator of places where they might need to make more improvements more quickly, as well as other key data sets like a bike master plan. So many cities have a bike master plan that they have in order to accelerate where they are going to create new bike facilities over time. And then they can evaluate all that data together in order to inform where new facilities are placed. Most cities might acknowledge that much of that infrastructure historically has been built based on on politics. So a person who screams loudly enough will get infrastructure put in where they want it. But with data, you can you know actually take a more you know, quantitative approach to making those changes. The bike people are really, they're convinced, right? They love that lifestyle and they get pretty Aggressive. I mean, I think all of us go through this, whichever mode you're in, you think the, everyone else is kind of an idiot around you. If you're riding a bike, the cars are too aggressive. If you're in your car, you think that the bikes are cutting in front of you. You know, everyone thinks whatever they're in has to be the right way right now. What are you seeing in kind of the safety trends with the bikes and pedestrians? What What's the real threats? Is it distracted driving mainly? Is it the, the wrong infrastructure? I mean, what happens when you get more dedicated lanes? Like how much how much safety improvement do you see? Well, I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of shift, especially over the last two years towards building more safe infrastructure. And there are a variety of different ways that cities might do that. So entire dedicated streets, just slow streets were pretty common during the pandemic, but there are cycleways in a lot of cities or at least specific days and then protected lanes versus unprotected lanes. And then identifying where that infrastructure goes. Maybe there are certain street segments that have too large a volume of large vehicles that or deliveries that occur where it just is difficult to make sure that cyclists can feel safe on those particular roadways. And so the great thing about data is that you can then start to understand, you know, where can you dedicate space for curbside pickup and drop-offs that don't conflict with where you're putting bike infrastructure, because the last thing you want to do is put places where you have cars zipping in and out of the curb, where you have a person trying to use that space to, to cycle or scoot down. So there's been so many changes since the pandemic. I mean, just my 
kind of main avenue in my Connecticut town, the restaurants, you know, taking up a huge part of what was parking and a couple blocks blocked off just for walking now that had been cars. I kind of love it. I hope that we continue. Are, are you seeing, are these areas that have been blocked off for pedestrians, bikes, are they staying? Do you think they're kind of a permanent shift in, in the city landscape? I hope so. I definitely know there are a number of cities who are keeping in place, for example, streeteries and also slow streets that have become more of a permanent fixture. So I think kind of varies from city to city, but I think a lot of citizens themselves like you have realized, oh, I kind of like being able to walk around more places and to be able to eat outside. This is actually lovely. And let's keep more of this around. Yeah, I hope so. So let's talk about policy a little bit more. Um, are there parts of, you know, policy creation and enforcement that you think are really ripe for disruption that have kind of gotten stayed and, you know, new data types being collected is going to really help rethink things? I think the biggest area that's ripe for disruption now today, and it's a topic that a lot of cities have been thinking about for a while, but now are ready to act on, is this issue of curb management. Over the last two years, as a lot of cities have gotten smarter about how they think about policy at the curb. And a lot of cities have started to recognize that, yeah, maybe we shouldn't make that space free. We do charge citizens for it sometimes, but it is a piece of real estate that we, we should be pricing so that we can better manage it, especially around issues like congestion and safety. So you're talking about charging per drop-off for, for a delivery? So if a Prime pulls up or an Uber... There's some kind of fee for each each drop off for using certain parts of the, the curb. Is that is that what that looks like? Exactly. But most cities are thinking about it in the context of charging on a per minute basis. So instead of charging people for 15 minute increments or 30 minute increments, you know, someone picking up or dropping off a package or a person probably doesn't need a full 15 minutes. So we should make it possible for them to pay for the space but, you know, prorated based on the time that they're actually utilizing it. And are they looking at, you know, kind of dedicated areas of curbs where only certain parts will be for certain kinds of vehicles so that you may have to pull up further up the block, but that's where you, that's where you go with that kind of vehicle. Is that, is that in the works? There are a lot of cities that have started to implement that. There are a lot of cities that actually already have commercial loading areas. So, I mean, in downtown San Francisco or Oakland, there are commercial loading areas that are designed for those vehicles to be able to use for loading packages or, or people, but usually packages, because they know that they need more space. They want to be near the buildings, especially if they're bringing in heavy packages or large volumes of packages. Beverage delivery, I think, is a good example of like where you want to be right in front of the establishment because those are, those are heavy packages to clear. So are there problems and, and biases in the data? Have you seen some that are affecting the mobility system or make it harder to reach these outcomes, these positive outcomes that we're trying to, what, what can go wrong with the data today? Well, I actually think that there tends to be more biases in decision-making without access to data. So without access to data, for instance, a lot of the way those many cities identified loading zones was that an establishment said, I really need a loading zone right here and put a loading zone in front of my restaurant or in front of my shop. And that's how decision-making occurred. But with access to data, a city can also serve mom and pop shops that maybe didn't have the resources to demand that loading zone. <laughs> and so I think that data actually helps to reduce bias versus the other way around. And we, for example, at Populous, we've started to integrate third-party data that allows cities to see where 
loading activity is occurring by category, so they can start to make decisions about where they might want to add new commercial loading zones based on data versus you know, a more manual process. You know, you got a PhD in what was listed in, in your bio, transportation and energy systems. And, you know, I do a lot of work on systems thinking. How do we get companies to think in these kind of full value chain ways about their impacts on the world? Can you just tell people who don't maybe think about this much, how are transportation and energy systems interrelated? And I'm curious what you kind of did for your research as a PhD. So transportation is a huge source of our carbon emissions. It's actually a lot easier to regulate stationary sources, so power plants, et cetera, versus you know, millions of people making their own personal decisions about how they get around. And it's very, very hard to manage. And that's a big part of why we've seen transportation emissions continue to grow, because it was just a lot easier to regulate stationary sources uh, of energy use. My PhD was focused on helping to build models to forecast the future. So when policymakers are trying to figure out, you know, what are climate impacts going to look like over the next 30 years, they need a model that tells them what is human activity over the next 30 years. And so I built transportation models that fed into larger climate models in aviation, high-speed rail, and later, later when I was at UC Berkeley, building the regional forecast for the Bay Area. So predicting the next 30 years of travel in the Bay Area so that transportation agencies who want to reduce climate emissions for their region could think about where they needed to build new infrastructure, what sort of policies might they put in place to reduce emissions from that sector. Did you have in your model that we'd have high-speed rail in the U.S.? Because it's been a maybe to come for decades now is I think China's built 10,000 miles or more of high-speed rail, and we have approximately zero. Yeah. My, my dissertation is actually focused on China and Europe and understanding, you know, what are the trade-offs and impacts between high-speed rail and aviation? And high-speed rail is, I mean, great for inner-city travel, and many cities that have made those investments have reduced the emissions of transport because it's a lot more difficult to reduce emissions from air travel. Well, even a few airlines, I think KLM, have gotten behind you know, encouraging their own customers to take trains if it's less than, you know, a certain distance. If it's a couple hours on a high-speed rail, don't take a flight. I mean, it's it's unusual for airlines to say that, but I think they realize the system is going to have a lot lower footprint if they, you know, manage this well. Our final question we ask everyone, which is, you know, if I'm looking out my window from my apartment in a city 20 years from now, what should I see? What do you hope that we'll see? I really hope that we will see more multimodal travel that allows people to get around more sustainably, more people on bikes, more people who have the opportunity to take transit that's more equitable. I definitely think we are going to continue to see the trend in terms of delivery services and on-demand will continue to grow. But what I also hope to see is, and I know we're already starting to see it today, is a lot of those deliveries in major metros are starting to shift towards e-bike delivery and thinking about how to better organize packages at stations so that people can pick them up or that people can deliver them on foot instead of having cars stop at every single household. Yeah, that sounds great. I hope I see I'm hearing kind of a consistent vision from the experts that we've been talking to. I hope we can we can make that multimodal and safer system work. So that's a great vision. So thank you so much, Regina, for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been great to chat. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Regina Clulo, for being on the show today. 
and walking us through some of the newest methods for data collection and how that data is being used to derive and enforce policy and make cities flow better. Do you love the show? Be sure to leave a review and make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Winston, and thanks again for listening to City Talks by Ford.